This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to Land Legacy Podcast. Uh, I'm going to jump into some fun hunting content on this week's podcast. Um, I've got the gang back together. We put the band back together after some wild trips out west for all of us. And um, we are excited to talk about some success that has been had in the great state of Iowa. Um, this is a Zoom meeting, so I got I can see Matt's ugly mug somewhere up there on the top. Right here. Yeah, Matt's here, and then I, I see two other guys that have joined us a uh, couple, what, it's probably been a month now, um, Mr. Greg Glessinger and Casey Morgan. Greg, how you doing how you? tonight? Oh, it's good, man. It's always good to see you guys and talk to you. Yeah. We haven't had much time. We've been traveling, burning some tires, traveling the country, and <laughs> tipping some stuff that. over. Yeah, no doubt. We, uh. Last time we did a podcast together, it was like we were we were in the habit of talking almost daily with you guys, and then it was like boom, shot out of a air a cannonball, shot out of a cannon, like boom, you were out west, and we didn't hear from you for a while, other than I got a FaceTime right after you you killed a bull in Arizona, and then uh, I think we got some we shared some texts when you were in Colorado, and then now you guys are back chasing whitetails, so. Hopefully we'll be in touch a lot more often as we as we all kind of are hitting it hard here going in the middle of October. For sure. Casey, you're joining us tonight. What's up? Feel great. Couldn't be better. He is he is uh we're gonna have to pull him back down to earth, Greg. We're gonna have to just try to try to bring this man back down to uh to reality. Um he's he's riding a, a high of all highs right now. That's a fact. Yeah, Casey, how how's it feel? Uh, feels great. Feels like feels like anytime you put in a lot of work and experience success, that's one great thing about my job and our the things that we do. You know, this is one of the very few sports where the harder you work, the more it pays off. Yeah, it's uh, it, you know, it was good to you know when we talked, um, we talked with you guys. Oh goodness. Last week you kind of told us about the cold front that was coming through, um, Iowa and that you were going to be getting after it and that you guys had a couple of deer you were going to be targeting. And it was like, okay, you know, whenever I see uh, a text or a phone call from you guys and I know you're hunting, I'm like, Oh, tell me the good news. And, uh, and so when I heard that you guys had had success is like well who was it which one and and uh and now i gotta see a picture and my goodness what a what a great buck you know it's a thumbnail of this podcast so anybody listening now could probably see it and see what a great buck it is what was the um score of that buck gross score i think it was 177 and two ace is that what it was greg can't 177 and six eights six eights nice. i guess 178 for the record book <laughs> I was two eights off. Oh, and he had some, he had some kind of, uh, a little bit of trash too. So a little bit harder to guess on that stuff. Unfortunately, he broke off his G1 during velvet at some point. So he would have been, you know, 184, 185, 186, probably 184, 185, probably. Wow. Um, so he would have been in the eighties without a doubt in the eighties. Huh. The 80s. Wow. What a deer. Yeah. How old? Seven, if not eight. I, th I, I have a feeling that once we start showing people pictures of, you know, how far back it dates, that people are going to say that he was older than we're giving him credit for the first pictures we have. But we're kind of just erring on the side of caution with saying, you know, he was three the first time we saw him. But I, I believe if you look at him, I think he was four, but we'll figure yeah. it out. Yeah, somebody out there will see it and get you squared away real quickly, I'm sure. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> I know uh anytime, you know, it's always 
it, it really is a, a whole new world. I know when, when we talk about Iowa and our consulting business and it's like, no, you know, you think, I know you think it's good here, but it's not Iowa. Like it's totally, the animals are just different. And so like when you see a, a buck in Iowa, my gosh, like comparing them to Ozark mountain deer, you just like, I almost can't even score them very effectively because it's just like they look like a different breed of animal to me. They just their bodies are humongous, usually um, in comparison. And then so that throws the whole uh, size comparison with the antlers to the body a little bit out of whack. So when somebody, you know, when you're looking at pictures of a deer for f four or five years, and you're going, oh, yeah, he looks mature. Well, there's a chance he may just be a really souped up two or three year old. And you're just looking at and you're just so used to, for me, like looking at Ozark Mountain bucks that are scrawny always. And so, yeah, I uh, I can't wait to see the pictures over the years and uh, and talk about those in the future. But, um, you know, uh, Matt, do you got anything to say as we uh, anything well, you want to mention before we jump into this? I know I talked with Casey as I was I worked in Iowa last week before the cold front. I know there was anticipation. Um, you know, Greg and Casey, you guys were both, you know, had your eyes set on different deer um going into the week. One kind of morning set, one was more evening set, uh, from a you know, high opportunities um chance there. But it, it's it's always fun to see right when uh, you know at least one person can harvest a deer and get it done um but I, I know that there's a lot here to the story it wasn't just the you know hey here's a cold front here's a deer that's shown up on camera there's a lot more that's happening behind the scenes and I think that with the ability through 10x we get to see everything that happens but with this podcast, we get to talk about it. And that's what I'm excited for you guys to kind of talk about your week a little bit and then get into um, the meat and potatoes of this deer in particular. What really is the culminating factors that allowed you guys to be successful on this deer? So um, October 1 season start this is pretty much the first cold front. So I know, right. There's probably a lot of anticipation first time getting out in the whitetail woods, having really good chances for, for both you guys. So walk us through that um, from your guys's perspective, what's prep look like? Well, uh, if, if we're talking about prep, this whole thing, you know, we're, this started probably four or five years ago. Um, and, you know, the specific locations that Greg and I were targeting on this cold front, Greg, the deer that he was targeting was a little bit more uh, showing up more often in the morning. Um, and then the, the deer that I was kind of targeting was more evening. So it kind of allowed us to hunt, you know, a full day of hunting, which was great to be productive on the cold front. Um, that deer that Greg is after now has kind of gone a little bit radio silent, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, but uh, the location of where I was fortunate enough to harvest this deer last week uh, has undergone some major construction since Greg got a hold of this property. And to the effect of, you know, completely picking up a blind and a food plot location and changing that, and then, you know, changing the bedding thickets and the locations of those to work better in conjunction with our setup. Uh, the list goes on and on. We can talk through all of that. I don't know how, you know, what level or, how, how you want to march through all this thing, but I'll let you guys kind of guide it. Yeah. Tell, talk to us a little bit about, cause I know a couple of years ago, Greg, I'm asking you this question. I think you killed on October one. Um, yeah, you, that was you uh, on opening day. And yeah, now you guys, ball. when yeah. was your first hunt in Iowa this year? Uh, October was it sixth or seventh, Casey? First day down, I want to say was the sixth. And, and yeah, and so, so we hunt. Yeah, so so it was the seventh was our first day in in the woods. And 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 I'm assuming for a lot of guys, you know, no, 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 no. Take that back. We traveled the morning of the sixth. We hunted the afternoon of the sixth. We had the encounter with Casey's deer. 
Casey shot him the afternoon of the 7th. We recovered him on the morning of the 8th. That's it. There you go. Gotcha. Okay, so now a couple of years ago, you killed on uh, 233 and change on opening day, if I remember correctly. Yep, you're correct. You killed yep. uh, triple play. Triple play on opening day. And I remember, and so I'm, I'm asking these questions because there's an answer I'm trying to get to. For a lot of guys who are hunting and, you know, season opens up October 1st, you guys have property in, in southern Iowa, one of, uh, probably, in my opinion, in the top five best farms in the country for whitetail deer um, and uh, for giant whitetail deer especially. And the thing that uh, I think a lot of guys would – would assume was okay if deer season is open you guys are hunting but even then you're waiting for the right conditions to strike so october 5th rolls around you're or 4th you're looking at the weather and you say okay the best opportunity cold front is probably going to hit around the 6th that's when we kick off season not october 1st just because it's opening day is that correct you're absolutely spot on yeah we casey and i were watching the weather very seriously day by day and we were going to leave sooner and then the weather cold front shifted a day or two and so we shifted our plans Mm -hmm. um and uh, you know it goes back to um you know you you, your your best opportunity to harvest a mature buck is your first time in yeah and and i'll say that for the next 25 years i've done it over and over and i think casey will, will agree because uh when we went in uh, we got there the morning, the afternoon at like one o'clock on the sixth. And we knew where we were going to go in the afternoon of the sixth. And that afternoon we saw the deer that Casey ended up harvesting. We, we didn't put it together that night, that afternoon on the sixth. Um, but we achieved what we thought we would do, which was have a really good encounter with them based on the Intel, the, uh, reveal cameras, um, the weather, all of it, the, the TSI, the TSI work and all the prep moving and food plot redesign, all of it said, that's where we need to be. And sure enough, you know, the gamble paid off. And then the big discussion was because we, we somewhat spooked him that afternoon, but he really didn't spook. He, he ran off, but his t- it, it wasn't like he was alert. He, he didn't really sprint. It was more of a casual thing. The rest of you were there. So I don't think Casey and I had many conversations of, you know, what was the level of how we left the field. And we both felt confident that he really didn't piece it together. Yeah. And so we said, you know, based on the weather and the wind and knowing that he really is a homeboy in that area, um, we both agreed that it was time to go back in the next day. And obviously we were on this podcast for a reason and Casey tipped him over. So, um, mm-hmm playing the weather and you know knowing knowing your cameras and sorting it all out and having that homework done prior to so you know when you're going and why you're going i think is and maximizing those first times sits in um is is so critical you know we we came home um but uh on the ninth because the weather changed it got hot temperatures rose and we're like you know there's no sense burning spots up and wasting time so now you know we're, we're back selling in getting ready for another you know push probably maybe monday of next week we're watching the weather it's kind of shifted we thought we we're going to leave sunday now it's kind of shifted more to monday and tuesday so we're waiting for it to settle in and then we're going to pack up and and go back at it so um Watching I, those that high pressure in those in those cold fronts are, is basically how we've been successful. I think of the old phrase that I learned as a young man, and now I learn it, and I say, "Well, that that's terrible advice. You can't kill deer sitting on the couch." And I think, well, yeah, that's true. It's like saying you can't kill deer if you don't have an arrow on your bow. Uh, but at the same time, you can sure screw it all up if you're in the woods when it's not right. And, uh, and I, I think for me as a younger hunter, that was something that as seasons open, I'm going regardless. And, uh, you know, looking back now, 
it's like, man, there's a lot of days. There's a lot more days of bad conditions than there are good conditions. And making sure you're hunting those days that it's good conditions and staying out of there when it's bad conditions, I think is some of the best advice um, and one of the best approaches that a person can have. Because regardless how good the farm is, you got to hunt it on the right days. 100% agree. Yeah. So what were those conditions going, you know, making that plan um, to, let's say, mobilize and get to the farm? Were we dealing with 70s? To How how big was this temperature swing to give people an idea? Because I think a lot of times they, they see a, a five, six degree temperature swing. They're like, oh, it dropped. It got colder. But like what, how significant are we talking about that really catches your eye that then you know, hey, that's going to be enough to get deer moving um, and really in front of where, you know, in, in the plots, daylight, in front of the blinds, what does that look like for y'all? Well, it was what, Casey, was it 20, 20 or 22 degree drop? Yeah, I think it was like, it was roughly, you know, 70, some 72, 73 down to 55, basically, um, between, but like we got down there when it was still slightly warm. So we hunted the front end of that front as well. You know, we didn't, we didn't just wait for the temperature to drop way off. We saw, you know, that that front was coming and and the pressure was rising as the afternoon got longer on the sixth. Correct. And and it was still fairly warm midday on the sixth, but that that pressure was on the rise with that approaching front, you know, which then resulted in those deer getting on their feet, which is huge in the early season, especially, you know, hunting food sources. If you get late movement and you're hunting over a food source, obviously, anytime you try to leave that food source at dark when hunting hours closed, what happens to you? Mm -hmm. You know, that late movement completely ruins your spot, you know, so that's what we were trying to plan around for hunting food sources early on. And to jump on what Casey said, that first night, the afternoon of the 6th, that pressure was rising throughout the afternoon. It was climbing as as the day got longer. And we saw that deer, I think it was 5'10". Is that right, Casey? Yeah, yeah. I just remember looking down, it was like 5'10", 5'12", something like that. That was when he first showed up. And it was, the sun was pretty darn high when we first saw him. Yeah. And so when I was trying to film film him, it was tough because the, the, the dang sun was killing my lens. Um, wow. It was noticed, so early. I noticed in some of those frames that you sent over, he was very much backlit, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the beans were just shiny and he was kind of a little darker and he looks like you guys took a, a statue and just stuck it out there. Like you don't, it, it's one of those things where good habitat and a great state, you can see a booner standing in that kind of light. Cause the rest of us refer to a thing called booner light where you're like, Oh, booners only step out in the last little bit of daylight, but it's like well, not Southern like- Iowa, not always. And, uh, and, and so let's talk a little bit about that setup. You talked about rearranging the blind and the food plot. Um, I'm thinking four years ago, we rolled in or three years ago, we rolled in and put a bunch of bedding thickets and some TSI around this area. 2018, 2018. And so I remember we, that was one of the biggest things lacking on this property, you know, years ago, previous landowner or it could have been a couple of landowners prior did a little bit of cutting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then it looks like they cut a decent amount, but they still didn't do complete open the canopy and let the sun shine down. And by the time we got there, it was really just kind of a briar patch and not a whole lot of sunlight coming down. And so we needed to really revamp those, put them in better locations. But the idea was there. It was kind of like they probably did it 50% of the way and they didn't do it the full, okay, let's really make this great. And uh, so we really went in and cut a lot of stuff and tried to put that bedding a lot closer to these food plot areas of this area that we've designated as food plot because we want that distance from bedding to where they're going to feed to be a lot shorter. So regardless of temperatures and regardless of, uh, of uh, hunting pressure or whatever, you, all the other variables you want to call it, the deer stands up and he doesn't have to walk very far before you guys can see him. So at what point that first afternoon did he step out? Like what was, what was that time frame? First evening was like 5, 12, 5, 15, 
first sighting. And I looked out the left side of the blind and I could see the top of his back. And I remember saying to Greg, I don't know what's over here, but he's a big deer. Like I could just tell the top of his back was just wider, you know, than, than yeah. other, other deer. And I was like, it looks like a mature buck. And then about the time I said that he picked his head up. Um, and then I was like, well, he's out here. <laughs> so, yeah. um, he was out early. And as you said, you know, it can't, the total cause and effect here is putting those bedding thickets as close as we possibly could to the food source while allowing reasonable access, you know, yeah. like you, you, the access now with the change, you know, we went from Southwest side of this bean field to basically Northwest side of it. Um, and the access that we gained there allowed us to put those bedding thickets closer to the food. And yeah. the original access was not as good. Although, um, as we mentioned before, when we were talking, Greg was fortunate enough to harvest a booner out of that initial set. And Greg and I talk about that all the time. You know, I think a lot of people would be satisfied, like, hey, we killed a freaking Boone and Crockett deer out of this. What needs to change? I think and, it would be hard for a lot of guys to change from that, mm -hmm. to say, you know, this is a killing spot. I killed a booner here. But you can look at it and probably say we can kill multiples over there now. Or we can yes. kill them a lot quicker. Exactly. And even though that initial spot was good, the access was not nearly as good. And, then you know, it handcuffs you what you can do habitat-wise when your access is poor. Because you can't increase habitat where you're going to be walking through it to get to your hunting locations. So the move just made sense on from a habitat standpoint, from an access standpoint, from a mul gaining multiple wins to hunt the location standpoint it just it just needed to be done yeah i think that you guys hit the nail on the head there even though that you've had success don't be complacent with previous success or someone who purchases a farm or or now you've leased a new farm and you see those old stands up i often see people saying well this must be a great spot and just accept things for what they are instead of improving them to what they need to be and that's what you guys do on, on a continual basis. This is just one instance where you've made the changes from a habitat standpoint, you've made the changes from blind locations, planted different crops, um, different food plot varieties, and bam, here we go. There was success in the past, but now we've just improved things so you can come back and potentially hunt more times in a row where, yeah, your first chance in is always your best, but you got back in there the next day and he shows back in, you know, back up. Like that's awesome to have two daylight encounters back to back Boone and Crockett deer. No doubt. And day one was a total mess up on my, my fault. And this is just a tip from blind hunting. You know, we had the wind in our favor for the way he was approaching. We had Northwest wind. And he was approaching from the south-southwest. Mm -hmm. So the wind is kind of good for him, but it's really good for us, which is a great buck-killing setup. You know, they think the wind's in their favor, and it's not. Um, and he ended up, and I just got a little impatient and ended up having a window in our blind, you know, open that we shouldn't have, I shouldn't have had it open because even though the wind was blowing in our face, if you have a window open to your left in a blind that's all sealed up, when the wind blows in one window, it's going to exit somewhere. And mm -hmm. if you give it a place to exit, that's on the downwind side of a deer. And, you know, that's just what happened. Luckily for us, when he kind of caught our wind and then he walked basically in a direction that was poor for him. So he walked himself out of our wind. And once he did that, he calmed down just a little bit. Also, there was another deer there that was not that was not get it catching our wind at all, which calmed him down. And he ended up just kind of leaving, um, not totally busting, bolting, snorting, stomping, you know, end of the world. But he definitely knew something was there that he did not like. And it was a total, total mess up on my part. I was at the end of the night, I was like, I may have just completely screwed this hunt up and that deer for, for the season or the week at least. Mm. How, what what made you after that encounter what made you decide to go right back in greg and i just sat down and we talked about it and we rewatched the footage and just watched his demeanor and we both just agreed that he was not 
completely spooked. You know, he just, he knew something was wrong, but he was not frightened to the point of, you know, there was no tail flag. There was no, you know, verbal cues from a, from a snorting or blowing standpoint. Um, He just kind of, he, he wasn't comfortable. And I mean, we've all been on food plots and food sources where one doe gets wigged out or a fawn takes off running playing and it clears the whole field, you know? Um, And so we just felt like the intrusion that we made was minimal with the access that we had. And then, and this, whatever wind he caught, it clearly wasn't uh, a full whiff. He just, he knew something was up and he wasn't comfortable hanging around. Sounds like you would almost say that he was nervous. He left nervous rather than left spooked. Correct. Correct. Spot on. Casey, there's something I want to ask, and it, it totally not about this hunt, but you and I have talked in the past, and, and uh, for people that hunt in food plots or in fields uh, early in the season, let's say, and you're set up on a field that fills up with deer, you're in an area of high deer numbers, and there are, there's a very good chance that deer are going to come into the field and be there at dark when you need to climb out and get out of there. And it sounds like this spot is one of those that could, could be the case. So let's say that deer didn't catch a scent and he is in the food plot or in the crop field at 70 yards and it gets dark. What's the game plan approach to clear that field to get out of there? Well, first of all, the number one thing, if you can help it, you know, I know you and I have talked about this, Adam, is if you can set your stand up, blind stand, whatever, so that when you leave, you at the very least are leaving dead dead away from those deer. Yeah. You know, if you get down and walk past or at them or, you know, you're asking for a crazy amount of intrusion with that kind of setup. So like, if you have it so that when you leave, you get down and you're walking away from my experience and just viewing deer, when people do that, it doesn't have near the effect of a human being walking in the direction of a deer. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, there's a bunch of different philosophies on this. I've heard, you know, you hear people from coyote calling from a blind or, um, but what Greg and I do is use our lights, you know, just to crawl down and, and try to get a doe somewhere near us to get nervous enough to leave so that those deer are getting cleared off by other deer not by humans you know yeah so it's like one doe or one deer got nervous enough to run and she causes the whole field to clear but it's one of them that knows it and it's not like she's going back standing in the bedding thicket and saying okay here's what i saw this is what we got to avoid the other ones are just like i don't know why betsy's running but we're running too Yes. If you can get, if you can accomplish that, I mean, cause I'm sure there's many of your listeners have been sitting on a field where a fawn came running out, kicking its feet and a doe got nervous and they all just ran. And you, you know, when you're sitting there hunting, you're like, unbelievable, you know, it's yeah. just like, what, what's the luck. But I mean, I think if you can get that one deer, whatever the means are, you get one deer nervous and out of there. And then she, she clears the field for you. No it's, doubt. it's definitely the most, effective way i think you know the drop-off pickup way that people talk about you know i think that works like twice yeah. you know if you saw if someone drive in and gets you from your blind um i think i think the more you drive in there right at dark the less likely those deer are to be there at dark you yeah know, if you keep doing i agree 100 I, I matt and i've seen that on past places we've worked where it's just like man this this works once maybe twice but with each night you do it, it's less and less and deer getting there before dark. But it's definitely better than nothing. You know, oh, if, you're, yeah. if your option is to get down and walk at that field of deer, you got to figure out anything better than that because, oh, no. you know, that, that's going to cause yeah. problems for you. All right. So he's nervous. He clears the field. You talk it over that night and you're like, we're going back. Um, now the cold front is officially hit, I'm assuming. It's colder the next day. Yeah, the weather is definitely better today than it was the previous. I shouldn't say it was better. It was colder. Um, yeah. The barometer was now high, but it was pretty much holding. You know, it was high, but it was kind of holding there. You didn't have that rising pressure. Um, but uh-huh. still, yeah, he, he showed it. I mean, the deer definitely moved a little later that second evening than they did the first evening. But 
obviously early enough. So it's getting dark around what time up there? Seven? I want to say sundown is like 6.50. Okay. So, yeah, seven-ish. So you saw him at like 5.15 the first night. What time did he come out the second night? I want to say 6.15, Greg, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. So still still plenty of light. Yes. Uh, how how far is you know this this food plot is kind of long linear it looks like on on a map is he coming out in the end and working his way up towards you yeah so every deer prior to him that second evening whether they came out from the north they would work their way in front of the blind or if they came from the south and around they would you know hit the beans and then work their way down into the food plot and they were crossing back and forth which is obviously ideal for bow hunting you know they're yeah. going um but both nights when he was he showed up he was heavy beans um heavy soybeans he he didn't seem to have a whole lot of interest in moving into that green plot uh, and greg and i were talking you know he came and started mowing down soybeans and with every second that ticks by Deer do not hang out in one spot for a super long period of time. They're such natural grazers that, you know, they're just looking for their next variety, you yeah, know? Right. So the clock starts tip ticking in your mind mentally saying, all right, I need to make this happen sooner. He's going to be gone. And both evenings that we saw him, he, he seemed to just kind of want to hang in those soybeans. Um, like he was, and he didn't stop eating. I'm talking, he was eating stems, all the pods off each one. I mean, he was, he was, that was his food of choice for sure. So he comes out, what, what's, what's next? He's browsing well, heavy. Where, when's this shot opportunity coming? Basically the same situation that occurred the night before occurred the second night. He's to the Southwest side of the blind, which is out the left side. And the wind is similar, but definitely had a little more West to it the second night. Um, and so but the wind speed just, was substantially less though. Yes, it was. It was, it was like five to seven. I actually, on the video, um, I am checking the wind as he's approaching, uh, trying to see what my wind speed is to, to know what Greg and I can get a whole, you know, get away with. Um, and so we were trying to figure out, do you, obviously you don't want to do the same thing you did the evening before. You don't want to repeat the same mistake twice. Um, so we were trying to figure out how we were going to get organized to lay the whole thing down on film and also get the window down um, and get, get a shot opportunity without our wind blowing in his direction. Uh, and he just, he happened to feed um, basically kind of back to the West, which brought him completely anywhere near out of our wind stream whatsoever. Um, and Greg and I were able to get organized and he presented a shot at 32 yards um, and I was able to get knelt down and Greg film right over my shoulder and the camera, the footage is unbelievable. And the shot definitely could have been better. Uh, definitely would recommend any expandable broadhead for whitetails. Cause this one definitely saved my butt for sure. Mm. Oh, you know, man. and let's, let's, let's jump on that real quick because, you know, I was had a long debate this summer. Uh, with a few social media people uh, when I sent out a post about I was going to Arizona and I had to get a fixed broadhead and, and a couple guys called me uh, uh, a flipper, which stands <laughs> for expandables, you know, um, and I never heard that. And I got myself up to speed pretty quick, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not going to get in this debate about fixed versus mechanical and all this stuff. I know everybody has their personal preference. It's kind of like Ford versus Chevy. You're not going to win, but you know, uh, since we've, uh, partnered up with rec and they have an extremely strong, durable 0.39 blade thickness, which is the thickest in the industry. And a thing I think is 1.85, cut i believe on the expandable but i have pictures of casey's deer that truly is a three inch cut um i have documentations of it and we all practice we all try to do the right thing when it comes to harvesting animals but you know you don't plan for bad things to happen but 
having a good quality expandable head will do you good when you do bad. And this is a prime example of why um, I, I don't understand. Um, I guess I can't get my head around why people use fixed heads on whitetails because they're so thin skinned animals. If you're talking about elk and moose and all that stuff, whole nother conversation. I understand it. I get it. Um, but when it comes to whitetails, I don't know why people don't want to use them more. I know they're popular, but I think they could be more popular because in this particular case, I'm not saying a fixed head would have killed them. I don't know. We'll never know. But I know one thing's for certain. A fixed head will not give us a three inch cut. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. I know is, is fact. Mm -hmm. So yeah. was the shot, the shot was low on the vitals yeah. at 32. Gotcha. Was he broadside? Yeah. He, he was basically dead broadside. The arrow entered and exited almost very similar locations. But I will tell you this. He was slightly uphill. Gotcha. Very slightly. So, so you um, basically hit him right behind the heart, bottom, stomach. I would say it was right below the heart, near the pyloric artery, exited slightly higher than that. Um, so not it's not there was no guts um okay when we looked there was no liver it was see like what amazed me most is that arrow zipped through him so quickly and it was five six yards past where he was standing and yeah. uh and if you think about that what's most impressive is you're talking about the lower chest cavity of a seven to eight and a half year old 260 pound live weight deer there's a lot of muscle and tissue down there. And that, that expandable zipped through him so fast and ended up beyond him where he was standing. And it, it really made a huge difference in being able to recover the deer. Um, because basically if, if that arrow hits, I'm talking, I'm going to go ahead and say a half inch, half inch lower, it grazes him and never gets into his chest cavity. That's how low. You, you almost missed him. Any lower would have missed him. Yeah. For sure. did, did uh this is another advantage in my opinion to write the the expandable like did it did it expand horizontal or did it expand vertical because that would play you know an impact on um you know that shot placement too and what it hits and what it doesn't hit with that variation yeah it, it was exactly perfectly horizontal i don't imagine it could have been any more horizontal it would have really helped if it was vertical <laughs> um, which would have given more, but I mean, it was, it was basically perfectly horizontal, um, on the deer's body cavity, but it was three inches wide, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so what does that, you guys obviously watch the footage, make a decision to not pursue that, uh, recovery that night, but go in the next morning. I'm really interested to hear about what the blood trail and all that looked like. How far do you make it? Well, before we get into that, let, let, one thing we didn't talk about is Casey and I had a long debate whether it hit heart or not based on the location. Mm. Um, and uh, when Casey found the arrow, it was decent blood, but it wasn't great blood. And mm. here's a lesson that, sh that I'd love to share with everybody listening is I shot one. Was that Casey two years ago? The Missouri yes. one? Missouri, yes, two years ago. Two years ago, I squared one in the heart. I mean, 10 ring the heart. That that deer went 0.97 of a mile. So let's just call it a mile. And it didn't bleed very well. Um, and we squared him in the heart with a with a uh, expandable. And so if you don't hit one of the you know arteries coming out of that, you're hitting muscle. And I thought that's what we're up against again with Casey's hit. And we dissected the best we could with video. Another great example of having benefits of filming your stuff. You get to watch it over and over and over and over and over and dissect it and try to have the best education you can before you go in. And Casey and I, it's two things are going to happen when we sat down and watched it on the TV that night was it's either he's dead now, which he'll be dead in the morning or two, we've got, a potential serious track job on our hands that we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so we said, let's just err on the side of caution. I uh, shot him at roughly, I think we said six ten or six fifteen. Is that right? Casey, we decided uh, I, you shot him at. I remember you saying six twenty 
because okay. uh, when we waited till after dark to crawl down, and I remember thinking, you know, we've given him over an hour before even making yeah. any, you know, leaving the blind. Good. Yep. Right. So then we went and shortly after all you're off to beat the blocks. So the pressure exposure that obviously go at first light. We won't I don't know. On I don't know what's going two, on, boys, but you're cutting out. I don't know if two, everybody else is hearing that as well. Five, I think Greg's Greg, so, Greg's Greg, Greg, you're cutting out. I think Greg just Greg, you cut out that whole last uh, yeah your whole last statement. It's interesting. Casey's like a a, a dog trying Is to pass each seat. I see him move around the house three or four Thank different you. times. Well, my my dogs are going out, going to the bathroom, getting ready for bed. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, Greg has uh, left the party for a second because he just he well, just dropped off in his metal metal building, but. Um, Casey, why don't well, you pick I up where pick he was up at? From where he was. Yeah, so just just to be brutally honest about it, if we had gone in knowing what we know now and following the track, if we had gone in that night, we would have bumped him. Yeah. He he bedded right. first bed within 125 yards of uh, the shot location. Yeah. So gotcha. you know when we were deciding deciding what to do that night, we looked at it. We're like, okay, we've we have experience with um, wounds in these locations. Craig, are you back? back yep gotcha so we have experience with wounds in that general location and just and also another interesting part is it was 30 going to get down to 34 degrees that evening wow so there's just no there was no risk of us um basically i shouldn't say no because obviously coyotes isn't is one thing in the back of your mind at all times but um, no downside other than that to give them the night and that's what we decided to do um, and when we picked up the trail the, the following morning, it, it was a hundred percent, the right decision. Like I said, he, he bedded not far and he left that bed at some point in time during the night. So definitely a good move. Mm. How far did he make it from, uh, the first bed at 125 yards from the shot to where you found him next? 260 from the first bed. Wow. Gotcha. Total track of three hundred. Okay. Total and I think I think that's another great thing we should acres. mention I mean, too, guys. Is when you go tracking deer, use that um, tracking on on hunt on X. Yes. Um, because it's a great tool to go. Okay, how far we push this deer? Are we pushing him? Is he still alive? Did, you know. So you have a point of reference because when you get your head down, you're looking for blood. You lose track of time. You look. You lose track of distance. And when you use that tracking device on Hunt on X, it's a great tool to go, you know, because we and Casey were almost at the point of talking about do we go get a tracking job or tracking dog or not um, because of how far he went in the blood sign and all that. And then about that point is when we found him. So um, that's one tool that I would suggest to use on every track job. Yeah, no, that that's definitely definitely key. I mean, that that technology is pretty awesome. You can save it. You can go back, rework your, re, you know, go back to the same the thing deal to look for more sign. It, it's awesome. Um, it is. Was he dead in another bed, or so you know he went one hundred and twenty something. He bedded down. He got up and he went another two hundred and some. Was he? Did he bed down again? And that's where he died. He he bedded. There was there was two if not possibly a third bed along that track and then it looked to me and greg i weigh in here whenever but it looked to me he made a slight adjustment to go uphill for a very short period of time and then it looked to me like he just kind of went downhill hard and and died in a very steep and grueling ditch <laughs> gotcha. gotcha yeah he um, had the last laugh i'll tell you that <laughs> Yeah, I know how so, ditches in southern Iowa are, so I can only imagine what how much of a pain that was. Greg, he he died almost. He did. He died very close to where Greg's booner out of the opposite set that he harvested did. It was very close by. They almost were in the same spot. Wow! Oh wow! How how was the blood on the track job too? Like, did it start out hot and heavy, and was it that that 
what what you say the heart blood um like what were you thinking going through that track job kind of I'm sure it was some highs and lows along the way I would call it at first initially I would call it good a good track job good blood not great not not automatic um but what was nervous and nerve-wracking for me is that I've seen a ton of brisket hit deer or forward chest hit deer bleed from muscle up there extremely well to start and then bed down um, and basically clot up and then go non-existent blood from then on because the deer is not lethally hit. Um, The thing that was what happened to us is very similar. After his first bed, the blood diminished um, quite a bit. There There was not nearly as much blood after his initial bed, but enough that we could if we went slow and looked and took our time, we were able to follow it uh, without a ton of trouble. I think we, you know, at one point in time I was looking, I think we took, you know, five, six minutes to find the next um, spot. And I think the total track was like just shy of two hours from the time we started to the time we recovered them. Gotcha. That's always nerve wracking along the track job. Like, okay, judging um, the, the amount of blood, what kind of blood it is. There's so many thoughts run through your head, but to find and then piled up like that had to have been a, a huge rush of relief and everything for you though, too. Yeah. And completely unexpected. I mean, I was fully prepared mentally as we were going along the track that we were not either not going to recover from that moment and have to go and get my tracking dog or, um, you know, or maybe never recover him at all. Just the sign after his initial bed didn't say, oh yeah, this year without a doubt is dead. By no means were we walking across along that blood trail going, oh yeah, we got him. That those conversations never happened. So, you know, when we, when he cut uphill and then kind of went back downhill, Greg said, oh, the blood goes back downhill. I started following it. And when I came across him down in the ditch, um, it was it was pure shock and awe for sure. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's that's. Oh, I'm glad you guys found him. Matt's heard me say this before. He's been with me, so he always backed me up on this one. But I'm the biggest pessimistic person on a blood trail because I've been on so many over the years. It is like you're on the highest of highs. You're like, oh yeah, we're gonna find him, and then you don't find it, and you're like, oh man, oh man. I've been on some of those where. You know, the, the hunter, uh, you know, it's like, we're going to talk about, yeah, we killed him and well, let's make a social media post of blood. And it's like, no, 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 no. We don't know till we got our hands on him that this deer is dead. So, um, I'm, I, I can imagine the roller coaster of emotions that you guys went through, uh, with, with that. So happy to hear that it didn't take long for you guys to find him though. Yeah. And I mean, we're pretty cautious. We, we dissect each hit down, even, I mean, if we don't see the deer run off and die, we do not pursue that track. I mean, if we don't see them completely tip over, we, we always, you know, take time every time because there's just no rush at that point. Everything you worked for is done. You've done it. You you let the arrow go. There's no point in, you know, you've taken probably, you know, what years or however long you've prepped for the season. And then, you're going to, you're going to go ahead and try to mess it up in 30 minutes because you can't wait, you know, two, three hours. And yeah. there's just no downside to giving them a little bit of time enough to give yourself a chance to be successful. And it's the number one cause of not recovering deer is pushing them too fast. It's just, it happens. That's why people don't get them. It's just bottom line. Yeah. Or you shoot a fixed head, like Greg said, right? Did I put <laughs> did I put words in Greg's mouth? <laughs> no, I just I yeah I hey if people want to shoot fixed heads, shoot them. I just yeah on, I, I on, agree. On, yeah. on, on whitetails, I just you'll never see me shoot a fixed head on a whitetail. Yeah, I've said it here, and I'll and I'll say it again. I just won't do it. Yeah, a good quality, so, expandable. That is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, oh, uh, but, and I, I will say this that. You know, obviously, the fact that he bedded and got up, uh, there was some cognitive function there. So that deer started to head back to thick bedding cover, 
basically where he had bedded for most of his life was where, you know, so, you know, you see deer that are hit really hard. They just take off and bolt through the woods. There, there's no mine. That's just pure adrenaline at that point in time. But obviously yeah. this year, you know, he was trying to get back. And when we, when we went to take him, haul him out of there, we stopped and admired, you know, the TSI and where the fires had gone through and just looked at the habitat and how close that backed up right next to those field edges. And we were both just kind of talking about, you know, this is, this is why he was here. This is why this worked. And you don't get to experience or even look at that, those things until typically February, March, when the season goes out, because you're not going to go traipsing through the heart of your farms during this time of the year. But, you know, it was really able to kind of lay it out for us when we went into tracking, you know, why he was living there and why we were able to be successful. Yeah. You know, another point too, that we should cover Casey is, you know, we sat uh, well over an hour after shooting him and well after it was dark, dark when we left and we didn't want deer to domino, you know, off the field and go into the woods and potentially get him mm-hmm. moving or wherever he was going to be. Yeah. And cause we didn't know. Right. And he, his first bed, would you say, Casey, I, I think he was within a hundred of the blind. Yeah. Oh, definitely with of the blind. I said he was probably from where he got shot. He was probably 100, 125. But of the blind, the way he angled, definitely within 100 of it. Yeah. And I'm willing to bet, you know, when you look up there, he could almost probably from his first bed see right there. I mean, if you shine a light coming out of there, I bet you he could. So that's another prime example of, you know, even though you want to get out of there as fast as you can, um, you know, wait till dark and do the best that you can because you don't know where he bedded. You don't know how close and he bedded close. So yeah. we didn't do the, you know, thinking and checking the boxes when we left. We could have very well pushed him off without even knowing. And he went, could have went who knows how far yeah. and made this situation okay. even worse. So yeah. it's one another the, note to share. One of the craziest blood trails that I've ever been a part of. Matt was there way back. I remember uh, that that happened it was a one lung deer so disaster from the start one lung fixed head deer ran off pretty sure we heard it stop or crash or at least bed down probably 150 yards from shot it was out a big ridge leaves had fallen is ozark mountains you could hear them forever and as we were walking out we jumped uh, a herd of like a a group of does and they ran straight at that deer and you heard them and then all of a sudden you heard just the awful sound and then the whole gang ran off and it was like i'm pretty sure that deer just got up from those other deer running on top of them and uh that was a that's a story for another day but that was a prime example of of uh craziness that happened from a domino effect of deer leaving yeah yeah, that's, it's a big issue. And if, if you've ever watched deer, you know, when Wisconsin, you can shine deer, it's uh and most states you can't anymore, but um, deer at night do not flee at the sight of a human being like deer in the broad daylight. You know, it seems like because they can't see as far and things like that, that if you get out after dark, when it's low light and you can sneak out of there, they're not going to freak out as badly as they will if they see you in broad daylight you know walking yeah. in their direction hmm. yeah good thing to know well so, I, I know there, there's another cold front coming um greg you excited for that cold front because i know uh i know you will be certainly after a good one um that's really just a couple days away before you guys probably pack up the truck and and head down well, we've got, you know, Casey's got tags. I've got tags for both. We both have tags for Iowa and, um, and Missouri. So depending on Intel, weather, um, you know, who's daylight and who's not will dictate, you know, where we go and when we go. So, um, it's a long season, you know, I, I think, you know, being, being patient is probably the, probably the most understated word of a old hunters, you know, philosophy um so yes am i excited absolutely but uh we will go after there's there's a couple of them that um i'm really want to chase but we're not going to go after them until you know the confidence is high and everything's all stars aligned so 
we've got plenty of uh, tags to fill and plenty of opportunities. We're just going to pick away based on what intel we get when it comes in. Awesome. Sounds yeah, smart. I saw that it's supposed to be 82 degrees here on Saturday. And then it's supposed to be 60-something on Monday. So it's like mm. there's going to be a pretty good drop beginning the next week, week from today. And uh, and like I've, I've shared on the podcast, and Matt and I is like we, we're trying to nail down and finish up our final consults of the year. And I've got a, I've got a consult in Florida of all places here this week. And as soon as that's over, hang it up put the computer away it's time to hunt so uh i know uh, i'm 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 getting jazzed up and ready to rock you should be with a 20 degree drop in temp that's going to be good yeah yeah and then probably our first frost as well so it'll be real good that's awesome the, yeah. yeah the 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 funny thing about those massive crazy temperature drops is it seems like it takes a deer a day to adjust to that Especially like, early know, in the season. Yeah. yeah when you're so gone, it's first... like, oh, yeah, it's amazing. You go out there and you're like, I didn't see nothing. <laughs> like, well, they're just Every as shell shocked as we are. Yeah. It's like, but then, you know, that following, you know, that first morning when there's a terrible drop in the, at night throughout the night, you know, it usually costs them. But then that following evening is usually good. And the whole next day is is awesome. But, yeah, they, they seem to get a little shell shock that causes them to bed up at odd times and feed at odd times when it, when it drops so drastically early on. Yeah. Well, I know that we're going to keep everybody updated because as soon as you get one down, another one down, we're going to circle back and do another podcast on it. So, um, yeah, we gotta, we gotta talk about all the out West stuff we had. That was an episode at some point. That was pretty fun. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to just doing more podcasts specific on hunting yeah true. so much on habitat for so long and it's like yeah i kind of like the break of going okay we're gonna talk let's talk deer hunting and elk hunting and all that fun stuff so guys we appreciate everyone listening um anybody got any final thoughts anything they want to share before we sign off here yeah i'll say one thing casey and i talked about it just a little bit um earlier in the conversation but just because your spot is good doesn't mean you can't make it better yeah. And if you, if you settle, then you're settling. And yeah. I, when we were talking about this whole hunt, I said, you know, the reason why we tipped over 178 inch deer is because we didn't settle Bingo. and we had no reason yeah. to move. The enemy did but great is good. That's right. And we made it. And, and after sitting there for two nights, um, Casey, you can jump in if I don't fill in all of our comments that we talked about. We both believe this new spot, I'm going to call it version two, could be number one, if not number two on our, our entire farm. Based wow. on our observations from the last three years going across the valley to this, to this side, which is, I'm going to call it roughly 250 yards away, um, just that adjustment, uh, we both, I would say, probably saw eight to 10 times the deer and the movement was more bow friendly than the previous spot. So when you're sitting in a spot and you think it's good, still don't keep in mind to observe your surroundings, watch the deer movement, what they're doing, when they're doing it, why they're doing it and go, is it better somewhere else? If it's not, it's not. But in this particular case, we both agreed. We thought it was better over there and the move is hundred percent that that spot's not going to move now it's we're only going to make it better we already we already came out of there uh, after the track job we sat there at the blind we said we need to move it roughly seven to eight to ten yards different and tweak it a little bit different and then it'll be perfect so um never stop learning always be open-minded and never never settle because if we would have settled we wouldn't have tipped over 178 mm. I like no it. doubt. And, and yeah, we, we tipped over a 178. It's a great location. Like Greg said, I was just going to add on to that. And we're going to tweak it again just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's oh, all good man. stuff. Well, Casey, you got anything? Final things. 170. What'd you say was 170? 177 and six eighths, I believe, is what he was. My biggest buck of my life. And I'm jacked about it. Six eighths and a seven and a half year old, most likely. Correct. I think he's eight personally. 
Yeah. He's old no matter what. So that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. He's his neck. You know, when you see a, a an old guy, you know, Barles and James having tea at the coffee shop, how is how is waddle? Yeah. <laughs> kind of shakes. Yeah. You yeah. don't see that very often unless they get old. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. this boy, he was old. Yeah. Well, there you go. I hopefully everybody enjoys it and uh follows along because we're going to share more hunting stories as we roll into the later October guys. We appreciate you joining us. We'll catch you next week. See you later.